time. Hello. And we can hear you too, even better. I'm uh, looking um, at uh, Patrick. Well, we can see you, but you can't see us. Is that the problem? Yeah, I'm looking at a, well, I won't say what kind of room it is, but um, uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a concert hall. But anyway, Barbara, thank you for having me. And uh, uh, Actually, this is the first time we've ever been about 20 feet tall. <laughs> you were on a giant screen. You were towering over us. You look like the fearless leader. Who, me? <laughs> who, who says I'm not you know um, I emerged from my pod uh, after three years of COVID and I greet you um, with sincerity and uh, tranquility um, my subjects <laughs> okay we're off to a great start so, I, I cannot see nothing but a, a blank screen um, so it's okay. Uh, well, you can just go by our voice. So let me start formally by saying thank you very much for coming. I'm Freddie Peters from the Ports of the Home, but I've seen you for a while. And I'm sure Right again. Um, can you still hear me? Me? Yes. I go now? No, you can still hear me. Anyway, I'm sure you all recognize Doug Preston, and you definitely recognize Lincoln Child up there on the screen. So Doug and I are actually in the campaign to see if we can get Lincoln to come and see us on another occasion, right? But uh, we summoned out in person next year for the next Pendergrass book. It's going to leave Lincoln Child. I should never have brought it up. That's right. It's it's high time I got out there, right? <laughs> we can't quite hear Lincoln, can we? No. Did you hear mine? Okay, right. So before before we really get going on this program, I wanted to mention that Doug and I have been doing this together since 1992. How many of you have ever read Cities of Gold or this? Okay. Okay, it was basically Doug's first book and our first event together. It's a journey across the American Southwest in pursuit of Coronado and his pursuit of the cities of gold. It's an absolutely gorgeous book. And um, this is Patrick's signed first edition. Patrick of our staff was kind enough to lend it to us so we could show it off. Um, we do, it is available in paperback and Doug. Tell us a little bit about talking to the ground because you wrote another travel book across the Southwest, and we do have copies of that out in front. Yeah, well, the uh, Cities of Gold was a, a friend of mine and I got on horseback and we rode, we retraced Coronado's search for the seven cities of gold, his crazy search for the mythical seven cities of gold, Arizona and New Mexico, and we rode about a thousand miles not following any roads or trails. And we just about killed ourselves because I didn't know anything about horses. I was just a, a dude. And uh, we, we packed our supplies and we laid down fences, a thousand fences, I bet, um, and crossed nine Indian reservations. Uh, and then I wrote this book, Cities of Gold. And then um, 
then they learn how to, you know, learn everything the hard way with horses. So, but when you learn the hard way, you really learn it. So then I, the next book was called Back into the Ground, and I got on a horse with my fiance and her da daughter, and we rode around the Navajo Indian Reservation for a month, uh, just just riding, you know, wherever, just going various places uh, in Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. And uh, that was interesting. The, the, the big reservation was established before the invention of barbed wire, and there were almost no barbed wire fences on the Navajo Indian Reservation except along rights of way for major roads. So you can ride for 100 miles without hitting a fence. It's really amazing and beautiful. And the Navajos welcomed us uh, very warmly. They said, you're doing this right. Why most people come out here and they drive around in the Jeep, tape recorder. That's doing it right. So, so we got a lot of uh, interesting information, wonderful interviews with with uh, Navajos who wouldn't have been disposed to talk to us if they'd just shown up driving a car. So, uh, so that that resulted in the book Cities of Gold. I know uh, talking to the ground, which was um, my third book. So, so it's an interesting publication story because it went out of print for a while, and um, Devin and I thought it would be great to have it back. So we persuaded his New York publisher. We we tried to, and they said, if we reprint it, not enough, we won't get any orders. We won't sell enough. It's really not going to work out. So I sent them an order for two thousand copies, and they perked right up. <laughs> and then we sold them all, um, and we still we're still doing it, aren't we? Yeah, it seems to be still selling well. And although after she sold the two thousand copies, I called the publisher and said, well, "Where where are my royalties?" And they said, "Oh, it hasn't earned out yet. <laughs> three thousand more copies if you want more money." So, so Can you hear me? Okay. Hoping that everybody who wasn't sure where to find us is now here, so we can now start on the actual program. Like, um, can we you hear me all right? Oh, you're doing great. Um, we thought we oh, might. I, talk I, wanted, I wanted to say that Doug spends a lot of time staring at the ground and talking to himself, so the <laughs> book was uh, well titled. <laughs> hey. So we thought that it would make more sense if we went back and talked to you a bit about the Cabinet of Curiosities. Can I assume that many of you have read the Cabinet of Curiosities? Okay. Um, it was. It is one of NPR's 100 best thrillers ever. FBI agent Pendergast discovers 36 murdered bodies in a New York City charnel house. And now, more than a century later, a killer strikes again. Is that where we first meet Dr. Lang? Lincoln, this is uh, New York territory. That's you. Yes, it is. Um, uh, you know, we, um, that book really was a seat of the pants kind of, of a book because we'd written several non-Pendergast books before it. And we were trying to find our way and each book was doing all right, but we weren't really breaking that ceiling um, and, you know, and, and hitting the uh, kind of competition we wanted to. And so we went back to Pendergast and we delved into the past. And, you know, we had the idea 
which we just talked about a little bit, about him having crazy relatives or criminals. And, you know, out of that sort of shadowy past came Enoch Lang. And the, the name came from um, Lovecraft's Plateau of Lang, which always scared the hell out of me for some reason. And uh, a short story called Enoch, I've forgotten who wrote that, but it was just a great name. And, um, you know, uh, then Doug had the idea of having this character who was killing all these, well, not to spoil anything, but have this character related to Pendergast. Um, and uh, things just took off from there. And that was a book that really um, broke, us, broke us out. And, you know, we never thought to write a, a sequel to it, but in hindsight, it makes perfect sense because he's the one character who's shown a shadow over all of the, all the books that have followed, especially the ones with Constance in them, you know, and uh, we've dealt with his wife, we've dealt with his brother, and it's time we uh, swept the, the board. Yeah, well, it was, uh, yeah, that, the thing about Matt was that he, he sort of wound his way into our, our minds and we couldn't get rid of him. It's kind of hard to write a sequel to a book where the character is dead. <laughs> um, but we found a way, and it wasn't until we, you know, when we conceived Bloodless, and then we, we how many of you have read uh, Bloodless? Most of you? I mean, I hate to speak, use spoilers, but there's uh, time travel in Bloodless. And uh, I've always been, you know, Rick and I have always been fascinated with time travel, but it's not time travel in the classic, uh, you know, H.G. Wells sense of going back in time on our own timeline. It's time travel that actually some physicists believe might be possible in uh, like string theorists and so forth, because they've hypothesized that there might be an incredibly large number, maybe an infinite number of parallel universes all packed very closely together. They're right here, all around us. We can't touch them because we're sealed off from them in some way. But that there may be a way to, to pierce that, that membrane into the next universe. And there's so many of them that because that there's other universes that um, where everything is exactly the same, except that they're in a different timeline than our universe. So the, the idea was that they pierce into a universe where it's actually 1880. And this is where Constance you know, realizes that she can actually go back, go to this other universe and save her brother Joe and her sister Mary and even save herself Constance, um, because the twin paradox, you know, in 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 our, in our universe, when you go back and you, you you find yourself as a child and you kill that person, and then how can that be? You know, it creates a paradox. It does not exist if you're talking about parallel universes on different timelines. So that was the idea that we had, and uh, when it got more complicated from there, but uh, we certainly had a lot of fun. Most of this novel, um, The Cabinet of Dr. Lang, is set in 1880, and Dr. Lang is still alive. And all of a sudden, 
because you know, in, in the Cabinet of Curiosities, I this is kind of a spoiler, but Dr. Lane turns out to be dead. Well, so that we never really knew them except through Pendergast's imagination and through letters and documents. Here in the Cabinet of Dr. Lane, we meet him for real. And he's a very, very uh, shall we say, interesting and disturbing person. So there's a modern story that takes place in June. And then Constance, when she figures out she can do this, well. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't have any control of the microphone. Thank you. So do let me know. Um, let me start over again then. Um, June in the present is when there's a story taking place with Adrian Coleman. You all remember Adrian Coleman. He's active there. Um, but November 1880 is when Constance gets into the parallel universe, right? That's right. And that story yeah. goes on through the end of December. So Lincoln, in order to recreate New York City in 1880, you must have done a ton of work. Yes, um, I wanted to add to what Doug said, uh, just which is a cabinet of curiosities. In, in neither book do we use the science fiction trope, like Doug said, of a time machine. In cab the first book, it was all on a, a mental construct of Pendergasts. And in this book, a machine is used to get into a parallel universe. So it's not going back in time, we don't have those paradoxes that Doug spoke about. But the real problem for me, because I had to write the initial scenes of Pendergast in Curiosities, and it required incredible amounts of research, you know, photographs of that day and, and finding out where the subway lines ran and the carriage lines ran and, uh, and then the real trick is once you spent five days researching, you have to figure out how to just pick out tiny bits from your research that like Pendergast or in the new book Constance will see as she goes past rather than stuff all your research on the reader's throats, which I know being an editor, you know, sometimes a person will write a historical novel and say, I spent two years researching it and damn it, you're gonna, you're learning everything I did. And that, that doesn't work. Um, and it was even harder in this book because Constance is actually back in 1880 throughout the entire book. Um, you know, uh, Cabinet of Curiosities took place in the present in all, like, except for printing of mind. And so, you know, I wrote the initial chapters for this book when Doug was finishing up the last Corey and uh, Nora book. And again, it meant we had some chapters set in Tiffany's, for example, and we had to get it just right so that, you know, it, there's a light touch, but you pay attention to things from the past that people wouldn't know about, you know? I mean, um, for example, I sat there thinking, what could I say as Pendergast walks down Broadway in 1880 that it would strike the modern reader as strange? And I thought, you know what? It could be it could be the fact there are no tall buildings anywhere. They're all three stories high. She'll see sunlight, you know, um, coming through from downtown. 
which nobody can today. And uh, so it's, it's things like that where you have to fuse research with imagination to make it believable for you, to your readers. Yes, and I'll, I'll, I'll just add to that, the, uh, you can see stars at night. In New York City, you see a fabulous dome of stars because the, the light, there's just not enough light to uh, block out the stars. And it's also much quieter. Um, I, you know, it, it was interesting because both of us had to really go back in our minds and really imagine what it was like. And that, that was an interesting thing. But Lincoln, I just have to say, Lincoln wrote some of these early chapters. And I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say that, you know, Constance goes back in time, but she brings with her uh, some beautiful, beautifully valuable gemstones from the Riverside Drive Mansion. Of course, Lang's cabinet is in the Riverside Drive Mansion. And um, among those things are some extremely valuable gemstones. Well, she swipes those and brings them back and sells them at, to Tiffany's. And the scene where she's selling these gemstones to, to Mr. Tiffany himself and his banker is absolutely priceless. Link wrote that scene, but I, I must say, it's, I think it's one of the best things in any of our books. Congratulations, Lincoln. Thank you. Did you go into Tiffany's and practice? What, what? I said, did you go into Tiffany's and practice? <laughs> no, actually, it was a very different place back then. Very different. Um, and uh, I had to, you know, I was thinking how many millions Constance could get for these stones of hers. And I realized we had to recalculate it back to $1880. And at the time, the most money I think Tiffany had paid for that, the Tiffany diamond was like four or five hundred thousand dollars, which when you think about the star of what is it, Doug? Africa, India, cost millions and millions. You know, um it's it was a much different store and it was it was fun figuring out the differences. And when I sees on a photograph of Tiffany from back then, you know, that was, that really is, is all it took. In 1880, was it on Fifth Avenue? Was it, where was Tiffany's in 1880? Where was it? It was, oh, it was part of the software it is now. Um, I think it was on, in, in the 30s. Okay, but those of you who don't know New York, Tiffany's, or its sins, or whatever it might be, has been right next to the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. And because when Trump was president, the security was there, we actually could hardly get it to Tiffany's. It was it was almost impossible to you know, to go there and shop. But it was in Midtown, and most of what what you're doing in this book, Midtown doesn't even exist, does it? It's um, it's much no. lower down in New York. It's yeah. funny in New York, you know, there are the, the regular streets, then there's the big fast streets like 14, 23, 34, 42nd. And at some past time, each of those streets was the artery of Manhattan. And then 25 years later, it was the next one north, you know, and the next one and the next one. And so in this, in 1880, you know, 50th Street would be. You know, not quite cow pasture, but 
almost. That's where those tables were kept. You know, the chauffeurs would leave the uh, the uh, uh, then equivalent of um, their limousines in the stables up there in the 50s in the lower end district. Right. Well, Constance, thanks to the sale of the gems, is able to check into the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which is a very posh hotel. Yeah, we do. And a real one, too. I mean, these hotels, even the poshest hotels, um, you know, had were really primitive by modern standards. I mean, for example, they had speaking tubes where you, you go into a room service with yelling into a tube. And uh, the, uh, they did not have uh, their own bathrooms. The, the elegant rooms, you, you had to go to a communal bathroom down the hall. And, uh, and they were terrified of fire. Apparently fires were a real uh, a terror in New York City in the 19th century. Um, so. Right, and, and Times Square, where some of this takes place, wasn't even Times Square. What was it called, Lincoln, back then? Oh, Long Acre Square. Long, Long Acre Square. Long Acre. Mm -hmm. and anyway, Doc, remember, where we are now, this agent D'Augusta, um, does he too manage to get himself back in time to help on this enterprise? Well, he does. Uh, Pendergast realizes he needs help. He needs a partner, and he needs someone he can trust. So he asked D'Augusta, who's just had a fight with his wife, and uh, his wife has gone to stay with her mother, um, unfortunately. So D'Augusta sort of on his own, and he's he's really sick of his job. He's sick of uh, being a homicide detective, a lieutenant, and um, and so Pendergast comes and says, uh, anyway, uh, Vincent, my dear Vincent, um, would you take a little trip with me and brings him back to you know." It's absolutely flummoxed. He has no idea. He can't even believe it. But he does eventually believe it. But uh, yeah, the Augusta it sticks out like a sore thumb. And he has to pretend to be Pendergast's servant. When, when they go to this grand hotel, Pendergast has to instruct the Augusta to, to you know, be a servant and, and be obedient to him and, and wait and, you know, Augusta doesn't like that at all. Just to carry Pendergast portmanteaus. But that was a real that was a real problem for us, though, because we, you know, telling the Augusta to go back and leave his family, his wife, and to go back to 1880 using this this contraption that was very jury rigged. You know, that's that's a huge ask, and so Doug and I had to really work hard to put D'Augusta in a kind of mental place where he would accept that offer. And we also had to make sure that Pendergast realized Lang was so formidable, there was no way he could take him on because of course, he doesn't want Constance to know he's there. That would wreck everything. So we had to not only make D'Augusta willing to accept the offer, but we had to make our readers understand why the why Pendergast would ask such a, such a dangerous thing. Why why is it that Constance can't know that Pendergast is there? Because she went back without telling him. She felt that there. I, this probably is a huge giveaway from Bloodless, but she felt their relationship was never going to work out. And she but and since this machine was there, 
and she happened to know that 1880 was one of the stops along the way, she'd save her, her uh, family who was killed by Lang and revenge herself, you know, in the time that she was supposed to live. Because remember, that's when she was born and her life was artificially lengthened by Lang. So in her mind, you know, 1880 was the time she belonged and she had unfinished business then. And Pendergast was afraid that if she, if she found out he'd gone back, you know, Constance is not too stable on the best of days. And uh, that would be a terrible discovery. So hence his secrecy. Amplify that. Well, yeah, the uh, the idea of Constance is being uh, a little unstable. Um, yeah, she's she's a little unstable, um, but she does certainly find when she is able to sell these jewels and and become a very wealthy woman, she creates a new alter ego for herself that I think suits her much better than than Constance Green and. Uh, I don't want to really go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil the story, but but she finds uh, herself in a, in a beautiful house on Fifth Avenue, uh, and uh, it agrees with her quite well. But <laughs> her determination to take, not only to save her family, but to take revenge on women, that turns out to be a step too far. Um, and that is what, you know, creates problems, let's put it that way. So basically, she has two siblings that she's gone back there to her sister Mary and then her brother Joe. So what's the background for Joe? Um, because she he's not going to be as accessible as Mary. Yeah, Joe was uh, her younger brother, and he um, was picked up and put in a horrible uh, prison for, for young people uh, on Blackwell's Island in, uh, in the East River of, you know, between Manhattan and Queens. Uh, and, this, and this place really existed. It was a real horrible place where, you know, the police would pick up street urchins and pickpockets and throw them into this, to this horrible prison where they'd become hardened criminals. And so Joe goes into this prison as a young boy, um, how old is Joe? I think he's uh, 12. About nine. And he comes out hard yeah. criminal on the day after this happens in the in our timeline, the day after he's released from Blackwell's, um, he's picking a pocket in the five point slum of New York and the person whose pocket he's picking catches him and beats him to death. And so, Constance wants to get him out of Blackwell's before he's he's warped by this terrible experience of being in this horrible prison. And so, of course, part of the novel is Constance getting him out of Blackwell's, Blackwell's Island, which is uh, very exciting, uh, I think, series of chapters. There's a real analog to that um, Doug has always told me that we should rewrite The Count of Monte Cristo someday because there's something incredibly satisfying about somebody who's poor and was wronged and goes off to jail and then gets a huge fortune and comes back 
you know, uh, in disguise to find his enemies have all prospered. And one after another, he takes his revenge. And we do the same thing here in a way. We, we turn her into the Countess of Ironclaw. I mean, the Duchess of Ironclaw. And because she needs to move in the highest circles of New York to, to get a Leng and to affect her plans, she can't be an urchin herself. And so watching her sell the jewels and reinvent herself and come out in society and to plan all this, plan the attack on Blackwell's Island, you know, plan revenge on Lang as this fake uh, duchess was really our homage to um, Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, it was a final analog for us to create. Yeah, and we, um, there's, a, there's a scene of, uh, of a ball on, in a Fifth Avenue mansion, which Constance not only attends, but she helped organize it. And this ball is set up to be a, a, like a honey trap but to bring Lang in. And, um, and as Constance is waiting at the door, like the, the spider for Lang to come, she's accosted by this 18-year-old girl named Edith Jones, this sarcastic, living, um, cynical girl who engages Constance in conversation. And Constance is really surprised at this insight and intelligence and brilliance. And uh, the girl is very, very clean looking. And uh, I'll tell you a secret. It's not revealed in the book, but that girl, Edith Jones, was married and become Edith Gordon. And uh, so we had a lot of fun. So that's, so that's a little fun little item in the book. Um, where Constance meets this famous this woman who wrote a famous writer who just come out and it's conversation like this is a really different a really different Constance thing we used to, you know, when she's hiding in the back of the mansion. No, this is a Constance with real agency. You know, this is the most powerful she's certainly getting in the books, isn't it? Well, it is. She's very, and that's, and that's another reason why Penny Rice doesn't want her to do She told me, saying, do not follow me. And he's so worried about her, he does eventually follow her in the very communities because she realizes that she's going to go too far. Because Constance always goes too far, doesn't she? She never stops when she should. She always, and so Pendergast knows that she's going to go too far in the pursuit of money. And uh, uh, so that, so there's a lot of tension there between the two of them. Of course, Constance doesn't know Pendergast is there until very late in the novel. So when can you take us to Blackwell Island and show us Joe? But meantime, where's Mary? Where is Mary and what kind of jeopardy is she in? Well, I, we don't want to say too much, but um, we play a trick on the reader because um, in, you know, Constance knows that Mary went to the uh, Five Points husband, House of Industry, where lots of um, young girls who were mistaken for prostitutes or urchins and gutter snipes were placed and then worked half to death um you know for years and that's where lang 
finds his victims. He pretends to be a, you know, um, pro bono doctor um, for the for the young people at the House of Industry. And um, Constance knows that it was from the House of Industry that Lang took her, but she doesn't know the exact date. And so as soon as she gets back to 1880, she races down to the five points. There's an awful slum, the worst slum in the worst, you know, um, neighborhood in the in the worst borough of, of New York. And she finds she's one day late. Lang has taken Mary to his hospital um, to do the uh, neural equivalent of fattening her up. Uh, and so she has a she has a week, a month to live. You know, Constance knows that, but Constance doesn't know where she is. But we then do have several chapters from her point of view, and it will be, it'll confuse the reader greatly when when they read those chapters and see where she is or where they think she is. Um, and that that was Doug's idea, and um, it was a good one. There's a certain suspension of disbelief that obviously accompanies this book, right? Well, don't forget, we've tried very hard to skew away from science fiction. And I would argue that we could we could defend both Cabinet of Curiosities, the memory crossings, and we could defend what happens here without invoking science fiction. Wouldn't you, Doug? Well, it is it is based on the multiverse theory, which is accepted by most physicists, uh, that there are you know, an enormous number of universes, uh, not just one. Um, how they exist with our universe, where how the interface is still to be decided, but it is not uh, actually uh, a fantasy of ours, but in fact, we base this idea of the time machine on actual physics. Uh, far out theories of physics, but theories that are held by a lot of, uh, of uh, physicists today. So Yeah, but the multiverse idea is really interesting because an ethic of time travel, most time travel stories, is that you can't go back in the past and create, do an action that will alter the present. And so that's the whole point of this book, is she wants to go back and alter what happened, if she can. But the thing is that she's going back in an alternate, so she's altering what's going to happen in an alternate universe, but it won't change what happens in her universe ever. But that means does she stay in the alternate universe? Is that going to be, I mean, I'm not asking you to answer that, but I have well, to ask myself if that's going to be part of it. That is a question that will be answered in the next novel. Ah, that will be addressed. So let's talk about Agent Coldmoon. I mean, he's in Ecuador in part of this book. So what's going on with him? We're well, now in June of the of the present, not yeah. back in November of 1880. Yeah, so, so Agent Coldmoon is uh, finally goes off to the, uh, the, the field office, the, the field office in Denver, uh, the Denver field office of the FBI. And because he's Lakota and speaks Lakota, they give him the case that in, uh, in uh, on the, in North Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, um, it was a murder case, and they felt that it, you know, it, it, the FBI is investigating because the FBI uh, does investigate 
um, murder cases on Indian reservations considered to be federal land. And so it, it starts off as a kind of an, an ordinary murder investigation. He's got a partner who's kind of a jerk. Um, but then it, it's, it really becomes a much bigger case. And at the same time, the Augusta is investigating uh, a death in the Museum of Natural History. A curator was locked inside a freezer and was found frozen to death. Well, it turns out that those two cases are linked. I won't tell you how because I will explore it, but those two cases are linked. So, Bill Weston called me eventually come together to figure out this case, and the answer to it lies in Oklahoma. Um, well, there's a lot of travel in this book, right? Time and space all the way around. So, anything else that you would like to say, Lincoln? Uh, I think that that does a good job of covering it. We, we, um, uh, Cold Moon wasn't meant to stay in a book as long as he did. Um, he was just going to be our playing around with the idea of Pendergast having a partner, um, which Pendergast hated, of course. But they got along so well, and Cold Moon ended up being such an interesting character on his own. You know, he had a lot of depth to him and a lot of promise, too. So we kept him around, and when, this, when it came time to write this book, we realized that having him going out, uh, you know, first he's out in Colorado, and then later on he goes to South America, that was a good cutaway or a good subplot from the noxious, mephitic atmosphere of old New York. And um, so... I'm not saying he's going to stay Pendergast's partner forever because essentially he's not right now. Um, he just sort of linked indirectly to Pendergast through D'Augusta's case before he, he followed Pendergast back. Um, but the only other thing I wanted to mention, Barbara, is when you mentioned that there's uh, there's a suspension of disbelief required to read this, um, you're right. But what Doug and I always try and do is make sure the, the opening chapters are as believable and with as hard and firm a scientific background as possible. So when we get to the brain-eating monster in chapter 40, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna be surprised. Um, in this case, of course, in chapter one, Constance goes tumbling back to 1880. So we had a bit of a problem, but hopefully readers of Bloodless will just, you know, shift gear easily as they will do for the book that follows this one. Well, my comment was not actually negative. I sort of like the fact that I, <laughs> I can enter into your world, even if it does require a little whatever. I mean, this world is such a mess at the moment. I think it's sort of fun to find out that other worlds also have their trials and tribulations, but people survived it. Before we go to questions from the audience, give us a little preview of August, because there is going to be a new Kelly book out on August 23rd. That's right, yes. Uh, that is uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I almost finished writing that novel, and we were having so much fun writing this novel. Um, it takes place in New Mexico, and uh, of course, Nora Kelly is an FBI agent, uh, still um, doing the mentorship program with young FBI agents, 
good for a couple of years. And um, there's a case where the, the Green Frat boys are up in the mountains in New Mexico and they cross the Jeep and it starts to snow and they, they take refuge in a cave and they find bones in the cave. And, uh, and that starts, that's how the novel opens. And it's about, uh, it's called Dead Mountain. And it's about when, uh, 15 years ago, the, the backstory of this novel is that 15 years ago, nine hopers uh, in these mountains, in these mountains in New Mexico, very high mountains, very uh, remote, um, uh, caught in a snowstorm and died under very mysterious circumstances, but they only able to find six bodies. Uh, and they never found the, the final three bodies of this ill-fated uh, group of hikers who were backpacking in the mountains. And as they uncover these bodies in the cave, they realize that there's something really, really strange about them. And it opens up this, this old case. And boy, it really it goes off on a, on a mysterious tangent. So. You fans are used to being Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, Preston and Child. But in point of fact, they actually write books on their own separately. And last summer, Lincoln wrote a terrific book, and we did talk about it. But in case you missed it, it's called Chrysalis. You want to give us a brief recap of Tripolis? Tripolis, sorry, Chrysalis. Thanks, Barbara. Um, yeah, Chrysalis was the latest in my series about enigmologists, which is really a fancy term for a ghost hunter, um, ghostbuster, perhaps. Uh, ghostbuster with a PhD. Um, um, and uh, it's about how he has to um, investigate a virtual reality company um, in which things are going haywire. The people who use the technology are committing suicide, you know, homicide, doing awful things, and nobody else can figure it out. And uh, the nice thing about my character, Logan, is that because he's an entomologist, he doesn't only look into things like the Loch Ness Monster or um, mummies and vampires. He looks into enigmas that nobody else can solve. And at this large corporation, nobody else can understand what's going wrong. And he has the ability to look outside the box and figure it out. And the book ends up being pretty technical, more, more so than I intended. But um, it just ran away with itself. And, um, and I thank Barbara for mentioning it because I'm very fond of it, but, but you know, you have to be interested in, in modern technology and to a degree in blockchains and VR and things like that to really um, enjoy it. Well, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was great. Doug has actually a book coming out in December, um, which is a nonfiction book. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, that's, um, I don't know if, 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 if any of you read any of my nonfiction pieces in the New Yorker magazine. The last city of Monkey God. Um, so, in this book in December, there's a collection of all my pieces uh, in the New Yorker magazine and in other magazines that involve murder, death, 
cannibalism and fraud. <laughs> so it's like my, it's like a criminology volume. And there's some terrible stories in this volume, but everything in there is true. These are true stories. Um, you know, for example, the Oak Island treasure is in there. That was, are you, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I did a story for Smithsonian where I went up to Oak Island and spent uh, 10 days with the treasure hunters. That was quite an experience. Wow. Um, so it's all those stories. And, and quite a few of these nonfiction pieces eventually uh, Lincoln and I adopted them uh, into novels. Like, for example, the Oak Island piece, because Lincoln read that article and said, yeah, we should write a novel based on this story. And we moved it to Maine and, uh, and so forth, and that became Riptide. So, so you can read the original Oak Island piece uh, in, in this book. So it's a collection of my nonfiction pieces. Right. So Doug will be here to, to make a great Christmas present, right? Taking a long view here all the way to December 5th. Yeah. So we get to see, we'll get to see both of them again in August and Doug in December and Jeremy Hunt, Lincoln, whenever he has a new book. But maybe this would be a great time to open up for questions. Before we ask you from the audience, Patrick, have you had any that have come in from, because Patrick is um, monitoring Facebook, just, can you even see it? Okay. Sorry, Sorry people who are watching it would probably can't take your questions then. Okay, so audience, Doug, do you want to take it? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, do we have any questions? Yes. Well, how do we work together? That's, uh, it's, that is always, we, we have been doing these for so long that we finally, we're like an old married couple, we finally figured out how to do it without killing each other. Um, but uh, basically, we plot the book together, and very, you know, carefully, a lot of arguing involved and, and research, and sometimes you have to throw away ideas. And then we, we do a chapter outline, and he, he takes a set of chapters to write, and I take a set of chapters, and he writes his chapters, and I write my chapters, and then we swap them and we write. Because sometimes we have problems, characters are different. He, he'll be the same character, right? But his character will have green eyes, and he will have brown eyes, and, and my character will be nice, and his character will be jerk. So we have to kind of figure out who that person really is. Um, and then we, you know, we write each other so that our, 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 you can't really tell who's written which chapters. And that's, that's basically how we work. And there's quite a bit of arguing involved um, and a lot of, but a lot, a lot less than there used to be. You know, we need to get really mad at each other. Um, but we need Dropbox and we really, you know, the work, the manuscript from Dropbox. And when I make changes and he makes changes, I don't know what changes he's made, and he doesn't know what changes I've made, and we're forbidden to use track changes or document compare. So that I just, so I'm not allowed to see that one of my beautiful Shakespearean novels play, he is novel. And he, he can't see a, a really beautiful prose that I've made. But you started out with Lincoln as your editor for a book, right? That's how you guys got together. You were in editing at St. Martin's, and Doug had a book contract. That's right. I was looking for a book, somebody to write a nonfiction um, 
basically a behind the scenes tour of the Natural History Museum. And uh, I tapped Doug, who was writing a lot of articles for Natural History. And that became his first uh, full length book. And um, we've hated each other ever since. <laughs> yeah, but you know, balance of power between an editor and author, you've had to shift that because, you know, it's different when you're writing together than when you were the editor and he was the author. Um, I remember when we, we first got our contract for Relic and they, one of the cut-off sales for the, for Tor accepting it was that they would have a freelance editor work on it. And when we got it back, Every page was slashed by half, at least. And when I looked that over for the first time, I realized this was some kind of karmic, karmic, you know, uh, reflexive ending where it's come back to bite me um, after all my editing over the years. So yes, it was a, it was a strange um, transition. But you know, Doug worked as an editor at a magazine. I worked as an editor at a trade house. So publishers can't get a lot by us. Um, we're, we're pretty savvy. I always thought it was a real tribute to both of you that you overcame the traditional balance to a new balance and have done so well with it. We did, yeah, we did. We, at first it was really me writing and then Lincoln rewriting. I mean, he's done much more of an editorial role, but now we've settled into really doing it 50-50. Um, I do half the writing. And have to rewrite it, he does about the same. And then we have I certain, like the old way better. <laughs> we, we have certain characters that we prefer to write, like, um, you know, I love writing Cory chapters, and Lincoln loves writing Hayward chapters, uh, or um, Constance. Well, I think Constance, both of us do Constance, but maybe Link a little more than me with Constance. So when you're doing research, um, do you, you know, do you take turns? Does it balance out? So one of you isn't doing a lot. Obviously, in this book, since you knew New York so well, you probably did more of the background for the 1880 times. Uh, Doug, uh, you know, Doug is always the person I turn to when it comes to anything scientific, you know, uh, dealing with physics or chemistry or anything, because he's a, a polymath. And I tend to do, do research into the more outre things and uh, or characters. And Doug has a, uh, a habit of saying, oh, Link, you understand that character so well. You outlined him so well in our last conversation. You should write the scenes about him. And uh, so now I don't talk anymore when we uh, um, have idea sessions. It came but, up with D.B. Cooper and the whole subplot in Bloodless, wasn't it? <laughs> that was Doug's. I'd never even heard of D.B. Cooper at the time. <laughs> oh, a lot of people might be. Did you even know who D.B. Cooper was before you read the book? Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful story. Never going to be solved, apparently, either. A perpetual mystery. Who else has a question? Yeah. So the elite um, things that you have in the book, such as clothing or weaponry or drinks, they always sound so upscale. And I, I, I'm always going straight to Google, like, wait, what is that? I've never heard of this before, just to, to find out what it is. So I'm curious about your research methods. What do you do to find some of these very obscure 
um, items or, you know, any of the things that I listed in your book? Let me answer that, please. Um, uh, I think I, I, I can't say I do more than that than Doug. I think we both do, you know, add that kind of stuff, but I, 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 I read really widely on, on a ton of subjects that I know very little about, um, from fountain pen collecting to absinthe to um, uh, vintage cars to uh, you know, vintage rubies. And so I'm always on the lookout in the back of my head for something unusual, whether it be a strange composer nobody's heard of or a uh, kind of a stiletto nobody's heard of. And, you know, it's thank God for Google because before <laughs> you searched it out, chances were one of us, probably me, searched it out to find the most interesting uh, you know, element. Um, I used to get annoyed when I would read books and people would mention trademarks, like he opened a Coke or he opened a Bud Light or something. But I think it's kind of fun to mention things that are really special or unusual and, or outre um, or nobody knows about anymore, old songs, old books, uh, old poems, um, because a lot of people looked them up. And it, you know, I think that's part of what makes our books interesting to people, certainly to you. Thank you for the question. Now, Link, Link is a fearful snob. We have only been the finest lines in there. <laughs> and then the ducks in his tax with research. What a dick. Yeah. Oh. You. There you are. Okay. Uh, I, I was curious. Um, I think myself, like a lot of people here, have been reading your books for over 20 years. And just, it's so amazing the matrix you created of characters and events. I think that's why people love your books so much. But I do find myself wondering sometimes if, if you were privileged to you know, get into your office or your files or maybe even into your memory palace, uh, <laughs> what, what would we see in the future? Do you, do you take this stuff? Are you planning ahead like a year or two or five years or 10 years? I'm just curious. Well, we don't really plan too far ahead because when we're writing our novels, things often change. So the time, you know, the timelines change, characters change, things happen that we don't expect. Uh, so I'd say we're about a year ahead. So right now we're trying to figure, not trying to figure out, we have, we're, we're you know, thinking very, thinking about what's going to happen in the final book in the series. Um, you know, we got to tie everything together. I promise you we will tie everything together. Um, but, uh, you know, there are still some details that we haven't figured out yet. And um, you wouldn't want to look too closely into Doug's memory palace anyway. There's a reason he has to register whenever he moves to a new neighborhood. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and don't forget that they've introduced at least two other series because we had Gideon, right? Yeah. We had three books of him, and we have Nora Kelly. And, you know, it's possible that you all come up with yet another, um, you know, Peter Gas is your name series yeah. that you seem to be inspired to go off with other people. From I think there are five Gideons. Yeah, we do. We, we love that. And, you know, Kelly, um, Corey Swanson series, Penny Gas makes a couple of, you know, sort of, Penny appearances. 
Um, some people didn't like that, you know, and some people did, but anyway, um, we, we just thought, well, we'll just have him focus nose in just a little bit to the, and solve some little small point of, of, of mystery or whatever it is they're working on, but. Constance Green has a very specific description in each novel. She's given this old world Hollywood glamour, and Sakanta also voiced the haircut. I guess I'm curious is there a particular actress from that era that you're trying to echo? And is there somebody current that you would cast in the role if you had the opportunity? That's an interesting question, Lincoln. You, you, um, see, there was a silent screen star, wasn't there? That you sort of saw, yes. Um, in, in, um, uh, in the book set on Sanibel Island, uh, Doug, is that Ragged Island? Um, uh, the Lost Island, no, the book set on Sanibel Island, Sanibel, you mean the you know, the uh, beyond. Yeah, Crooked Ruler. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, there's a uh, um, uh, chief of police who um, sees Constance come out of the car and um, immediately, he's an old, a fan of old silent movies, and he identifies her as Olive, I'm blanking on the last name, but, you know, when, when, when she first grew to maturity, um, I had a such a clear picture of her with those short bobbed hair with a slight curl at the bottom, dark, you know, like one of those old Art Deco um, sketches from the uh, the margins of New York New Yorker magazine from the nineteen thirties. Um, and I I don't know about today, Doug. Maybe you have some ideas, but I've seen some actresses who I think, wow, that's that that could be Constance right there. You know, it's it's more the, the the glamour of what she wears and the way she, you know, um, the kind of watches she has and the kind of antique stiletto she carries and the the flapperish appearance that that to me stands out the most strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Is there is there a character that you regretted killing off? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. Bill Smith back, yeah. We, uh, I don't know, I was really fond of Bill Smith back, and I think Link was too. And um, I, you know, I'm sorry that he died. That was really too bad. I have to tell you, we were at one point, I mean, one of the points is that nobody's safe in our novels. So we, at one point, we're thinking of killing Margot Green. And, uh, and I said to Link, you know, I don't think we ought to do this without getting some kind of a dance notice of how our readers are going to feel about this. So we went on, there was like a discussion board. And we, we went on the discussion board anonymously as lurkers. And we said, we heard a rumor that Preston and Child were thinking of killing off Margot Green. Uh, what do you all think about that? Oh, an outrage. How could they? I, they already killed off Smith back, those bastards. The thing was, I never got another drink of man. We're like, okay, I know my right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 
you know, we did want to make, we did want the reader to feel uneasy about any character in the book who's under threat. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, opening the uh, universe to the multiverse, uh, can we anticipate a Pendergast uh, partner with Pendergast, or worse, Diogenes with Diogenes from other multiverses? And given that, when can we expect Bill Spitzak to be back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 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 you are really going to, you really thought through this. Even better than we have. Now, these are great ideas. Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> I didn't even mention Diogenes. He's been kind of quiet, but it would be interesting to see what happens with Diogenes. Don't yeah. be bad. I'm just mentioning it. Diogenes. Yeah, Diogenes. He's a, a weird dude. Mm. Yes. Question. Um, there's some interesting relationship relations that Pentagon has over the years. Can we anticipate learning about other strained Pendergast relations? Well, I don't know if um, how many of you have read the in our newsletter. We started a a series of stories, at least you know, stories about Aunt Grady Cornelia. You, how many of you read those? Okay. Yeah. And um, how many have not read those? Okay. Well, they're, they're available for free. Um, you have to subscribe to our newsletter. And then, um, but anyway, but so yeah, Great Aunt Cornelia is someone we're going to explore maybe a little bit more. Um, yeah. Uh, They're interesting people. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, it's a, it's a family with a streak of madness, criminality, and genius, all wrapped up into one. And you never know which way they're gonna go. One of them's gonna go, so. But right now we've let a lot wither on the vine. You know, Diogenes, uh, Tristram, we gotta get back to those and, and take care of business, I think, before we pay too much attention to some of the other odd birds that are in the family tree. But yeah. isn't it interesting when you write a series like this, how many characters develop and it becomes like a whole community? And then and then you have to worry about whether you can actually cover all of them and you really can't in the restart. Yeah. But then yeah. you know, so well, we can't even remember. <laughs> you know, we don't really do research on ourselves. And we have to go back and read some of our books. It's like, you know, we wrote Relic 30 years ago. How many years ago was Relic? 30? 30 years ago. 1995, right? Because cities of Rome, city years. That's right. It was like 19, yeah, it was like 28 years ago, 27. Anyway, so, um, you know, we have to, you know, and we're also getting older and starting to get forgetful. No, no, we're not. not really. But, uh, anybody else? Yes, sir. What trying to follow up as far as Pendergast being, I, I heard it, uh, Spike TV originally was going to do some like, series on them for a bit, but it just kept going under. And I, is there a chance that we're going to see that in the future? And if so, who do you see playing Pendergast? Well, I have to tell you something that's quite sad and very upsetting to us, but, uh, you know, Paramount Pictures 
bought the rights to Relic, and they cut Pendergast out of the movie. And why did they do that? Well, they then told us that Pendergast was going to be the star of the movie, but then they cut him out. And you know, we won't talk about that. They have they have had rights to the Pendergast character now for 27 years. And they've told us they have no interest in doing anything with him ever. They said, we're not interested. We've got other things we're doing. So we, our agent then taking this into consideration, went out and got a fantastic offer of over a million dollars from Manor, uh, the same group that did, uh, I think, Breaking Down and, and The Sopranos or something. And these are really great you know, television people. And, uh, and then Panamon wrote a letter to our agency saying, a really nasty, mean letter saying, no, you can't do this. Uh, we own the rights to the character and we'll sue you. And so forget it. And so we lost that deal. And now we're going back to Panamon and said, look, you've, you've been telling us you don't want to do anything with this character. Um, you have no interest in it. And yet you, you, you won't let us do anything else with it. Why? And they're like, oh, you know, there's no answer. They're just mean people. They're bad people. <laughs> so, At this point, we'd be happy to have Elvis play Pendergast just to get it made. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he something like that. We name him called Pendergast. Splendid. And he said, no, no, they'll do. And then the problem is that the threat of a lawsuit scares everyone away. Oh, we don't, we don't want to do anything with this character because they're going to sue us. Um, so what about the Kelly? The Kelly is available. Um, the, the problem is it's so complicated legally that it's that they are like an option on every book. The Pentagon said they didn't have an option on all the characters in those books. For Nora Kelly was introduced outside of the Pendergast universe, but then she, no, she was introduced in the Pendergast universe, but even though she's not outside, she's still, you know, it's still, there's a, a murky legal area there. So, but yeah, we're, we're really upset. There are a lot of authors in the boat with Hollywood. Um, studios are holding their characters and don't ever want to do anything with them, but don't even want to let them go either because they're just, they don't care. They just don't care. And they don't, they don't have any respect for writers or for content creators. I mean, Pendergast is our, our life's work. He's our greatest creation. And they just have a, their boot on his neck and they're never going to let him go. So what about the Monsters Lawrence? Well, the Monsters Lawrence is Television is going to be made into a television series by Apple TV. So, that George Clooney, you all remember them, right? Yeah, George Clooney is no longer involved. He is out. But then you've been too old to be Doug, you know, right? Absolutely. You can count Antonio Banderas as Mario Spezzi, my partner in the, in the sorry adventure. Um, but uh, they haven't cast me yet, so I don't know what's, who's going to do that. I didn't. Too bad you can't play either. You'd be fabulous. Yes, perfect. Um, so some of the people I'm, I'm sort of watching on Facebook missed a bit of the conversation. Did you, can you talk a little bit about extinction? That's one of the questions that. Um, oh, oh, you mean the April 23rd, 2024 book? 
see, we're way ahead of the game here. Uh, I mean, that, that book's way in the future. That's my, my solo, solo novel that I wrote, and it'll be published in April of 2024 called Extinction. And uh, that's, uh, it's actually, you know, there's a group at Harvard, um, uh, a at Harvard Medical School named George Church, one of the company and he's got from the Google Boss twins and a bunch of others, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they're de-extincting the Hyacin and they plan to de-extinct a number of other large Pleistocene animals. It's Michael Crichton coming to life. Jurassic Park. Probably is going to happen within five years. This is not even science fiction. We're going to see it in our lifetime. And, uh, so this gave you the idea for the novel Extinction. It's not Jurassic Park. Um, I think it's even worse. But anyway, when it comes out, you can read it. Back. Is there any other question that you found? Yeah, any, any other kind of books of exploration that you, you'd like to write at some point? Oh, I've got all these ideas. I have to develop them now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. What is there somebody over here? Oh, yes. Um, uh, I, I came through series by listening to books on tape, and I realized that uh, Amazon Prime was a pyramid scheme for my family just to get all the books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they wanted to know um, how, how, um, how involved are you in picking the, picking the voice actor, Rene Aubergine-Bois, to do the early books? And did you interact with him very much before he passed away? Or was that all on the publisher side and you didn't have a say? That was all on the publisher side. All, our only input, unfortunately, was to uh, correct pronunciations of certain words they didn't know. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Deep Space Nine and of Rene and Doug is too. And it was, we were really sad when um, he passed away, but we, we, we didn't have any contact with him and we have no choice in the matter of who gets what voice talent they use for our books. Well, we did, we did complain once about after Rene passed away, they recorded a book. Apparently they had some trouble getting talent. And it was, we got all these complaints from our readers. And so we listened to it and we we're like, oh, this, this, this is not good at all. So we complained to a publisher and they agreed with us and they re recorded the book. And we pushed out the new voice recording to everybody who purchased it by, you know, so it was much better. You know. For, uh... I was about to say that whoever that the woman was wanted to know I looked up um, our book and found it yes it is all of Thomas that's right okay. one more question way up there yeah. what's the, the chance that you're going to drag Lincoln on an overland horseback ride like uh, <laughs> Lost Cities of Gold <laughs> adventure with Lesson Zero that came out a while ago, that's the, the chances. <laughs>
But Lincoln really used to have a horse right here in Arizona. It was tongue hanging out. Oh yeah, Wheeler. I was at, a, at the Orman School. I had a horse called Wheeler. Um, everybody had to ride had to ride a horse, and my nobody wanted my horse because he chewed on barbed wire, and his tongue was always hanging out, and he was always, you know, getting rid of the drool on some other horse. But he was the fastest horse there. We would, um, you know, uh, bush bend down the dry creek beds, and he would, he was, he was something else. I can't believe but he no, has I'm not I'm not gonna go out there for 30 days and and starve and, and die of thirst. Uh um <laughs> and watch Doug's beard get longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. Is there one final question? Does anybody have one? Nope. I think we've paralyzed them. Okay. Well, Lincoln, it was wonderful to see you. Thank you for signing all the books in advance. Thank you, both. I was, uh, thank you guys. Sorry I couldn't see you, but um, Barbara, as always, thanks so much. And Doug, thank you and everybody who's there. We really appreciate your, you know, um, your support and enthusiasm and picking up the books. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're the engine that keeps us running. So thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.